I'm Renee. Hi, I'm Sam. And And this this is Laboratory Laboratory Podcast. I always tell students that it's research because you do it again and again and again. (laughs) And research does not go as planned. Welcome to Laboratory Podcast. Exploring the human side of science. With recorded interviews of emeritus and retired scientists on the evolution and history of scientific research throughout their careers. Hey all, welcome back to Laboratory Podcast. Today, we're wrapping up our interview with Judy McDowell. As you may remember, we left off with Judy as she was pursuing her postdoc project on crustaceans and with her discussing how her observation skills played a large part in her success. But what also contributed to her success is her understanding that every project requires persistence and, in her words, a leap of faith. Well, I think every scientist takes a leap of faith that when they're posing a hypothesis or designing a set of experiments, you know, that are going to go into a new proposal. You know, you do all your background information, but you're proposing some new idea. And you're taking a leap of faith that this idea is not going to lead to complete failure, that it is going to move the field forward. So I think that's very common. And, you know, not every idea you propose is successful, but I think you learn a lot from failures. Um, and you just learn that they're part of finding, you know, the true answer. So it's just part of the process. So, you know, again, with that metamorphosis question, I mean, why would I, you know, I knew, I had hundreds of replicates and stuff, and knew that it wasn't just a mistake. I knew there was something more there. I mean, your hypothesis is constantly um, reevaluated and, you know, when you test hypotheses and you don't get expected results, you, reform, you formulate new hypotheses. And that's just the nature of research. If, if someone feels that everything is going to work out perfectly every single time, then it couldn't have been a very interesting question because that's why you ask questions to end up asking more questions. And stuff. So I think it's it's very common research does not go as planned because the nature of my work is fairly broad in terms of, um, you know, understanding, you know, how an organism balances its energy requirements. You know, if something doesn't look right, there's a reason for that and stuff. So that reasoning could lead to a total new discovery. One such discovery occurred when Judy posed a question while teaching that encouraged one particular student to think outside of the box with their research. Well, I gave a lecture in in, uh, one of my physiology classes one year on, it was right after, you know, we learned more about hydrothermal vents and these large um, bivalves that lived without a phytoplankton-based food chain. And so I posed a question how do you think, you know, these organisms, we knew that they had sulfur oxidizing bacteria in, as a symbiont in their systems. And say, how are, where are they getting their essential fatty acids? If they're not on a plant-based food chain, what do their membranes look like? Because where would they get the omega-3 and omega-6 
six fatty acids because it's not in their food chain. And I had a student, you know, who was just taking the class. And she said, that's a great idea. I'm going to work on that. And so she wrote her thesis proposal to examine that. And you could use, there are coastal models of those symbiont relationships and bivalves. You can get them at Hadley's Harbor and you can get them, you know, also because they live in really deep anoxic coastal sediments. And so she started experiment there, you know, she had geochemists on her. And so what she found was that their membranes were just fine. They just replaced these bacterial fatty acids in their membranes and they didn't need the, you know, the fatty acids that we considered were essential to multicellular organisms. And so she found there was a group in Russia who was asking the same questions at the same time. And there was a group in, in um, Europe who was, you know, doing similar. So, you know, her PhD dissertation was phenomenal for the international connections that she made. And so it was just a question I posed and she ran with it. And her interest, you know, I'm going to answer that question. So it was something, you know, that was pretty much outside the box. Every good scientist should certainly think outside of the box. But for some members of the scientific community, it may take them going above and beyond in order to be recognized for their hard work and to move ahead with their career. Well, when I joined the staff at Hui after spending a year as a postdoc, there was only one other woman in the department out of like, I think there were 32 staff members at the time. I think I was number 32 when they hired me. Um, and there was one only woman and she was leaving. And so... But there were two other colleagues I could look to, Mary Sears and Betty Bunce, who had been on the staff. Um, Mary Sears worked for Huey in 1930. I mean, she came down from um, Harvard, and Betty Bunce was a long-established geologist. So they were decades older than I was. There's two of them, and then there was me. I was the first one to come through the tenure system. They were granted tenure before they actually had a tenure system because they had had such a long-term career here. So it was very different. And, um, you know, when I go back into my graduate program at UNH, I was the only doctoral student in seven, among 70 graduate students in my department. And, you know, one of the, you say, you know, what challenges did you face? Um, I wrote a paper for a class. And the faculty member in graduate school, you know, who I submitted the paper to, said he did not expect such a well-written paper from a woman. I'm thinking, well, okay, there's 70 of us in the department, and, and you get one paper, and you, you pick it out and say, I didn't expect this from a woman. And people say, well, he, you know, what did you do? You slug him? or no. I said, no, I just said, well, why not? Yeah. I mean... Women tend to be better, you know, writers oftentimes. They're more logical and stuff, but I didn't give them that questions. But <laughs> So um, I had an interview with AAAS in the spring when they're like they're doing, it was their women's history issue. And so they, you know, they wrote an article in my, you know, 50 years in the field or something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told the writer this question, this, you know, scenario, and she goes, you didn't get mad. I said, well, you know, 
it's his problem, not my problem and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, That's right. um, you know, it was thinking, this is why we don't have more women in this department yeah. if this is, you know, his attitude. And within a few years, the opportunities for women in environmental science and ocean science totally changed. So when I was graduating, the department had become 40% women. And I think that's really what's happened here, too. You know, I went into a department meeting a few weeks ago because I'm retired. I don't go to all department meetings. And, you know, there were five new women I didn't know. They were all new assistant scientists. And so, yeah. so you know, the, the expectations certainly um, of, you know, not saying, well, it's not a gender. You know, a good piece of re- research is a good piece of research. You don't, it's gender, it should be gender blind. It should be diversity blind, too. And I think we still have a lot of strides to make um, in terms of diversity. Sometimes I think when I look at all the, you know, I've, I was associate dean for 10 years. And so I looked at you know, all the admissions, all the postdocs over that time period. And, you know, for many of the graduate students, you know, the men were going on to the typical careers that you would expect them to coming from MIT, HUI, joint program. The women chose different career paths. They felt that they had the flexibility to choose different career paths, but they also felt that they looked at the traditional career path and think, this is too much pressure, or this is not what I want to spend my time doing. Um, So I don't think that there were if they had applied for the top jobs, they would have gotten the top jobs. But I think that there was a feeling, this is not what I want. And, you know, that's really too simplistic a way of putting it. Um, but, you know, I was, would salute them forever and I think they, they chose. Um, my student who, you know, did the lipid work and had this great discovery, um, she finished in four and a half years you know, from bachelor's degree to PhD. I mean, it's amazing. She had seven papers, published papers, out of her PhD dissertation. Her husband was finishing robotics program, and, you know, they were looking for jobs. And she was offered a faculty position at one university while he was looking at postdocs. (laughs) And she said, you know, that's not what I want. I don't want us to be in two different cities, you know, we're married because we want to be together and we want to raise a family. So she took a postdoc in the city where he had one. And then he, you know, from the staff and he started a small robotics company. And she said, you know, what? I'm really good at a lot of things. I can run his company. And that's what she did. And they retired at 55, you know, and they have three, you know, grown children now. And, but, you know, everybody said, oh, what a waste. I said, it's not a waste. And I, I think it, it takes the, you know, I think women somehow says, you know, I will do what I want. Where some men, I'm expected to do this. Um, it's nice if everyone can do what they want. You know, that the traditional path is open to everyone, but the alternative paths are also open to everyone. Personally. I think that we as a society are fascinated with how women are able to juggle the career they choose and having a family. 
We tend to place the responsibility of taking care of the family primarily on women. But here, Judy talks about how everyone in her scientific community aided one another with this responsibility, in good times and in bad. Yes, I do have a family. Uh, But I had uh, a lot of medical issues, which prevented me from giving birth. So I have two adopted children one from Romania and one from Paraguay. And so I was a senior scientist before I had my two children, (laughs) Uh, which was the unusual path. But, um, you know, but so be it. And they're great kids. They're in their late 20s. And um, the ones at Northeastern, one works at Dartmouth Medical School. Um, So one's in public health in New Hampshire and... Um, Katie's a communicator at Northeastern. So how do we balance? Well, my husband and I would split our day so that he would leave early in the morning. So I would bring the kids to school or bring them to the school bus. He'd be home by the time they got off the school bus or, you know, by the time he went to pick them up at daycare and I'd come home a little bit later. And, you know, juggling that is something that we did all through high school. Um, and working with other families. I mean, you know, when someone goes to see, you know, whoever's left at home has now got twice as much work. So as a group of families, we would always cooperate. If we knew that one person was going to see, then, you know, I'd make a couple of extra meals to drop off, or, you know, I would pick up that child, um, you know, and they would do the same for me and stuff. So because everybody's traveling all the time, you know, you want to make sure that there's a stable network at home as well. Just within your, the project? No, within just friends from daycare or friends from school. Um, Certainly friends within the department. I mean, so it wasn't just, you know, my technician. It was, you know, Lauren Molinos, oldest son, and my daughter, were best friends when they were like three. And, and, you know, so it was easy to take one home um, for supper yeah. and, you know, and then bring an extra meal for the family and stuff. So, um, you know, it's just family situations and that you just be very supportive. And that's what's really nice about the, you know, the scientific community in Woods Hole is that people were very generous with their time and very supportive of one another. It was key to have that social network of, you know, I'm here if you need me. Mm-hmm. And, and that just is spilled over, you know, like, whatever you need, don't hesitate to ask. I mean, it, you know, certainly our workday can be flexible. Um, you, you're working way more than 40 hours anyway. So, you know, it can be flexible to, to pitch in when, when someone needs extra assistance. The family support didn't just exist when they went to sea or had long work days, but extended beyond that, supporting Judy even when she was battling cancer and holding a high-position job at the same time. Yeah, I'm a 10-year cancer survivor, diagnosed when I was department chair, and I didn't miss much during that whole time. I would say, okay, we're going to have to meet on these days because Tuesdays are chemo days and stuff like that. But, you know, the support that, you know, I experienced during that process and, um, 
And that's something I give back to other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if someone, you know, has encounters a serious illness, it's just a part of me that, you know, said you people, people helped us out and, you know, we're, we're here to help others mm -hmm. out. Um, it did leave me with, um, a chemical sensitivity that I can no longer be in laboratories. So I work up all my old data. I have a hard time going in beyond Redfield 204. I have a hard time going to the upstairs because it's too many solvents and things like that. But I'm still here on this planet. So yeah. don't be afraid to go to Boston, seek out the best. Um, don't be afraid to keep asking questions. And one of my chemo drugs, I was severely, um, it, it was severely toxic to me. I mean, the first dose I passed out in 60 seconds and stuff. So, um, but keep asking questions and keep pushing, you know. And it's, it's a shame how uh, I had ovarian cancer, which is, rarely diagnosed early and I don't know why mine was but um I was only stage two and you know most people don't get diagnosed until it's stage four and there's not a very good prognosis and stuff but um yeah I mean my advice is you know people say just stay local it'll be more convenient no you know, I'm not saying that local isn't good as long as people know what they're doing, but we didn't have a cancer center mm -hmm. at Falmouth Hospital at the time. So I went to Dana-Farber, and the guy who, you know, diagnosed me and surgery, he says, I do this all the time. You know, I mean, he, could, he was a wonderful guy. And he would say, you know, um, yeah, you got a big tumor there. I mean, my tumor was the size of a basketball. <gasps> It had compressed all my oh internal my organs, and I wasn't eating, and I thought I had a gallstone or something, oh but no. Size of a basketball. And, um, but that, you know, I says, you know, I've seen worse. I've seen bigger. I've seen smaller. We'll, we'll manage this. I mean, it was always that confidence. I'm not worried about this. You know, we'll get you through it. And, you know, when I hear people refuse chemotherapy, I'm like, oh, chemotherapy is horrible. It really is, especially when you're allergic to one of the drugs. But I can't imagine refusing it. If you think, I mean, I, you know, I can't appreciate people who don't want to go through the process. And if they just want to say, no, you know, I've accepted it. And, but, um, but, you know, it takes, it takes fighting to overcome it. And so, you know, I've, you know, talked with lots of people who've had cancer diagnosis and helped them through, you know, even driving them to treatment and things like that, you know, be that moral support for someone. And again, that's another thing where, you know, it's your family is so totally disrupted. I was, our son was going off to college. He didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he still has all I have to say is I have a headache and he is just beside himself. My daughter just takes charge you know, and stuff. She would come to chemo appointments and stuff. Okay, let me see what, what are you doing to her now? <laughs> and stuff, and let me take that down. And stuff like that. You know, and stuff, but it's just what, you know, families need. And I, and I think that's one thing that, you know, there's such a close group of colleagues here that you're there for people, not just because of they have some interesting scientific data. You're there for people because you know, 
you're all in similar situations, you know. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a real community. Woods Hole has certainly been a welcoming community for me as a newcomer. I've especially enjoyed how the scientists go out of their way to try and explain their research to the public by hosting talks and holding other such events. When asked about how to best communicate science with the public, Judy said this. I've always been a proponent of communicating science. I mean, whether it's going to science fairs, talking to students, um, you know, sitting on committees that are developing policy, you know, advisory boards. So I'm always, that's always been. Because I think if you're working on environmental issues, you don't keep the information hidden. You know, you want people to to develop sound solutions and sound policies. Um, I was also director of the Woods Hole Sea Grant program for 25 years. And so that is one of the mission of Sea Grant is not only to support, you know, scientific research, but to communicate that research to the stakeholders, the public, you know, influence um, different management approaches, influence legislators and stuff. So just that very nature of that, um, you know, something I was very supportive. I think working with advisory groups to solve problems, um, increasing environmental literacy uh, are all really important. The public need to know they need to be informed on what environmental issues. And I hate that now when we say, oh, this is not relevant anymore. This policy isn't relevant anymore. You see, we need a careful analysis of why you think it isn't relevant anymore. Because we do have many environmental problems, even within our own community, that need careful decisions. And yes, it may increase taxes in order to get a solution. Um, but you're better for it in the long run. So I've always been a proponent. And I, I think now when National Science Foundation asked people, you know, as a requirement of their proposals to have a broader outreach, you know, broader impact component. So all of a sudden people who would never go to a classroom are going to classrooms or never thinking of doing a podcast or, you know, a film or some other aspect to reach the public. Now it's become second nature for many people. Um, so, you know, I, I think social media has certainly made it easier to get messages delivered to the general public, um, but you want to ensure that the messaging is accurate and balanced. So just a casual tweet at 3 o'clock in the morning doesn't cover it, but, you know, but it is a powerful way to reach a lot of people. We work with our like our major focus is on seafood and aquaculture, coastal processes, uh, shoreline erosion, um, marine policy, environmental literacy. Those are the major ones now. And so, you know, scientific research on erosion of the national seashore. Take that one step further and come up with a policy recommendation or a management approach to protect that shoreline. Um, bacterial, I remember Seth Myers, you know, on the late night. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, family's from the vineyard. Well, I think he's from Boston, but they have, they have a house on the vineyard. And he said on, on his show one night that everybody got sick at it from, from 
eating contaminated oysters. And everybody got sick, you know, at his wedding. And then so everybody was mortified. But, you know, that uh, vibrio contamination of shellfish is a huge problem. And it's, you know, and shellfish harvesting, shellfish aquaculture is an important industry for the region. So we supported search and line. Better understanding this, better management practices, better handling practices. That was a huge embarrassment for the vineyard. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so anything that, you know, would help the fishing industry, you know, the recreational and commercial harvest of shellfish, uh, aquaculture, water quality issues, uh, coastal erosion issues, you know, now shark issues. Mm-hmm. Um, inform the public of, of what is possible and, you know, try to control the messaging with, you know, sound, rational work and policies rather than leading to hysteria. You have to really make it entertaining and accessible and comfortable about learning. I mean, like some things we've done is like use the Wellfleet Oyster Festival to introduce, I gave a lecture there one time on oil spills and, you know, why we have a lot of oil spills on Cape Cod and so forth and what you can do about it. Um, other people have, you know, done, you know, pairings of oyster and wine that's, you know, different restaurants and take that opportunity to talk about some of the environmental issues on Cape Cod and, and what needs to be done to keep shellfish, you know, being clean, safe, and harvestable. Um, or, you know, after a hurricane, they, you know, do like a video of like, okay, this was the shoreline before, this is what's happened, you know, what kinds of measures do we need to take to protect that shoreline? So, you know, almost bring it in as entertainment um, so they feel comfortable accessing it, but, you know, have powerful messages delivered at the same time. Judy believes part of good communication must involve breaking down barriers between scientists and those outside of the lab. She hopes that through improved dialogue, society can, one, better understand the part that scientists play in the world, and two, how it can benefit from scientific discoveries. I think, you know, science benefits all aspects of society. You know, protection of our food, our you know, our clothes, you know, our jobs, our education, the environment around us. Um, and it's just linking, making society realize that science is just not conducted in an ivory tower somewhere, that it's significant and it makes their lives better in the long run. So, you know, I, I think if I could change anything, I would, I would change how society views scientists you know take away the mystique i mean you know it's you know people will come and say well you really have a cushy job you just work on what you want to work on like yeah but i work hard on what i want to work (laughs) on you know so so, i mean i think that there's they don't necessarily see that as work i mean Mm -hmm. you're not punching a time clock or you're not making a widget but what you're doing is intellectually very challenging and sometimes can be very, very difficult. And, but I don't think society sees that. 
I think they see that we're just kind of playing around here. Like, you know, and we're not building a new car. We're not designing you know, a new house or, you know, we're not making billions of dollars. And, and yet, if, you know, everything that science contributes, you know, leads to some of those other successes. Yeah, they think that we just live in like this crazy world and like, but I mean, I think, you know, over the past half century, I think this, this idea of, you know, science for society has really evolved. And I think, like in the Obama administration, it was very much appreciated and very soundly recognized. And in this administration, I don't think it is at all. It's just like, oh, they go away, you know. And, and I think, you know, the way that especially young people are speaking out about climate policy and, you know, these climate strikes and this climate action, I mean, is really a statement that we need to better understand the world around us. And where are you going to do that? To conclude, Judy has this final piece of advice for up-and-coming scientists. Be persistent. Research is not easy, but it can be very rewarding. I mean, a new discovery is very exciting. Um, And if a research career, you know, when I came here, I thought, oh, I can have enough ideas which might be last me a year. And, you know, new ideas just lead to new ideas. Um, So discovery is very rewarding, but you have to accept that the process is difficult, but there's that outcome at the end. So persistence is key. So now that we've concluded Judy's interview, what did you think of what she had to say, Sam? I thought a lot of things. I thought that she was a very strong woman. I loved her anecdotes about Woods Hole, how she came up in her career. I always love hearing about the history of things. One uh, item that's sticking out is the Candle House for some reason. I love thinking about that and how Woods Hole was uh, used back in the early days, I guess. But also how encouraging she was to the people around her. And she seems like a consummate teacher and just generally positive. What did you think? What I took away from this, for the most part, was that she was so tenacious and determined throughout her entire career. When she was a younger student and she faced the hurdles of being one of the few females in her class and having to prove to the professor that she is just as smart as any other guy in the room. And then she was tenacious and she persevered when she was battling cancer and holding a high position job in a research institution where she was one of the few females in that high of a position. And she brings home that idea that you need to carry that determination through to your science and you need to repeat it and you need to continually research and it's not try one time and be done. It's try and then keep trying and then when that fails again, you try again. And it was really nice to see that determination carry her through from when she was a child until now. Yeah, it was really heartening to hear her stories about her parents. As you were just saying that, though, it reminded me of uh, the theater process or the art-making process. It's not just you go 
through and you make a fantastic work of art, you keep on going. You keep on making. You try and try again. You may fail many times, but it could yield such good results if you keep on being persistent. I'm finding more and more that science and theater and art making are really one one and the same. same. It's beautiful. It's creation. Agreed. Well, thank you, Judy, so much for taking the time to be interviewed by us. You were phenomenal, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Hey, y'all. We're still a new podcast, so please support us. Head on over to our Instagram and follow us at Laboratory Podcast. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash laboratory podcast. Or visit our website at laboratory-podcast.com. Also, feel free to email us at laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more super scientific interviews. I'm Sam. I'm Renee. This has been Laboratory Podcast. And this has been our latest lab notebook entry. Until next time. That's why it's research. It doesn't, it's not search. It's, it's research. Over and over again.